We'll be looking at some things in the Gospel of John. So, um, two incidents in Jesus' life that are really interesting. Uh, both of these have a lot of implications for us on a pretty daily basis. So, uh, very, very good stuff. Uh, we want to talk about Jesus' first works after his baptism and temptation. Interestingly, the Gospel of John doesn't really give us much information about Jesus' baptism and no information about his wilderness temptation. And um, interestingly, it looks like John is trying to give us a day-by-day uh, -day review of Jesus' first big week in ministry. And that's what that starting paragraph is about. Uh, evidently, the Gospel of John records events from each day in the first big week of Jesus' earthly career, bearing in mind the significance of the number seven and a week in biblical history. So we're going to have the first big week in Jesus' ministry. In John's Gospel, after the baptism of Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness, which John does not narrate, John mentions a particular day in which he was, uh, in which John the Baptist was interviewed by messengers about his identity, whether or not he was the Messiah. On the next day, John the Baptist boldly identified Jesus as the Lamb of God. And the next day again, the third day, was when John's two disciples, Andrew and John, began to follow Jesus instead of John the Baptist. I know we have two different Johns in the air. Sorry, I should have clarified that a little better. And the day following, that'd be the fourth day. So you have the interview day, the Lamb of God day, the two disciples leave John the Baptist day. And the day following, that's the fourth day, that's when Philip and Nathaniel met Jesus. And we begin in chapter 2 on the third day after that, after the calling of Philip and Nathaniel, uh, there's a wedding in Cana of Galilee. So you have the four days, the interview day, the Lamb of God day, uh, the disciples follow Jesus day, and Philip and Nathaniel day, that's four. And the third day after that, another three, you have the wedding, that's a week in Jesus' life, a week of ministry. And so it's very interesting that John is doing that. So here we are, very early. We can imagine Jesus probably being baptized in, say, February, and then we have uh, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness, and then we have this big week. So we have to finish all this before the first Passover. So we have an idea of where we are. This is very, very early in year one, of Jesus' ministry. And we're going to see the miracle of turning the water into wine. Uh, you know the story, but chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day, third day after the previous four in chapter 1, there was a wedding in Cain of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. They ran out of wine. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews contained. 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. They filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now. Take it to the master of the feast. They took it. When the master of the feast had taken the water, tasted the water that was made wine, did not know where it came from, but uh, the servants who had drawn the water knew where it came from. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. When the guests have well drunk, then that which is worse, you've kept the good wine until now. 
this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and it manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Well, so that's Jesus' first public miracle. And even that was only sort of a semi-public miracle, huh? Because it's just with one little audience there. Uh, it's not obvious even to the master of ceremonies what happened. But the servants know, the disciples know, Jesus knows, his mother knows. And uh, there are a few things in this story that are pretty surprising. So let's talk about his unusual answer to Mary. Why did he say, woman, instead of mom? I say, woman, what have I to do with you? You know, why, why are you telling me this? And then my hour's not yet come. Why did he say that? Well, here are some suggestions just to kind of give you a background. First, since Jesus' family is at the wedding, Mary even advising the servers, you know, the caterer, whatever he says, do it. Well, it sounds like there was some family obligation there. Uh, Cana is close to Nazareth, and so maybe this is a family deal, and uh, one of Jesus' relatives is getting married in Cana. Uh, The second bullet there is, since Mary, perhaps more than almost anyone else, really knew who Jesus was, and since she probably knew that Jesus' public ministry had officially begun because we had his baptism, his public anointing by the Holy Spirit, uh, his first disciples are following him. She probably meant to suggest to her son that this might be an excellent time for him to use his extraordinary influence and ability for a good cause. We don't know exactly what she meant for him to do, but she knows who he is and his public ministry has begun. So we could imagine that she's saying, could you do what you do or use your clout, use your influence and have somebody take care of this? Could you do this? And so we're not sure she was asking for a miracle. Some people, John Calvin of Calvinism fame, suggests that she only wanted Jesus to say a few words of encouragement because morale was low and he could pick them up. That's possible. But I think that Mary thought that Jesus could perhaps use his influence and his ability to fix this problem. The third bullet, when Jesus says, woman, Jesus intended no rebuke or impoliteness when he addressed Mary as woman. He intended no rudeness when he addressed Mary this way on the cross, commending her to John's care. So he says, woman, behold your son, remember. And he intended no rudeness when he addressed the Syrophoenician woman this way, or the woman whose body was drawn up due to demon possession, or the woman at the well, or the woman caught in adultery, or Mary Magdalene as she wept at the tomb. Jesus calls you know, women, women, periodically, and we shouldn't think of that as an insult. It was a normal and polite way to address people in that day, and so he's not being rude to his mother. On the other hand, Jesus probably had not addressed his mother this way until this particular time in his life, probably because he never needed to communicate such separation from her and from normal earthly ties until this occasion. So he's not being rude, but he is treating her like a lot of other women instead of a special, you know, mother kind of woman. And so that is on one hand surprising and on one hand perhaps not. The next bullet down, fourth bullet down, Jesus wasn't irritated with Mary's implied request when he responded to her, what have I to do with you? Since Jesus had no blame or obligations for what was happening, he could reasonably ask, why are you telling me this? Evidently, the unrecorded or 
nonverbal communication between Jesus and Mary was such that Mary's request for Jesus' extraordinary intervention was clear to them both. So she doesn't seem to take offense at this when he says, you know, what have I to do with you? What, you know, why are you telling me this? We think that she's okay with that because she walks away and tells the servants, whatever he tells you to do, you just do that. Um, there seems to be a twinkle in the eye or something that lets her know we're all going to be okay here. So she's not irritated and offended. The last dash bullet there. Jesus sounds like he is declining to intervene in the host family's problem when he says, my hour has not yet come. But he probably only intended to remind Mary that his identity was a delicate matter of faith and that miracles could not be doled out thoughtlessly lest they cheapen his message and enrage his enemies. You realize that when you have a miracle like later in the Gospel of John, when Jesus raised Lazarus from death, that essentially was the the straw that broke the camel's back. And they knew then that they were going to kill him. So Jesus can't just do miracles all the time in every place and accomplish his mission. Uh, his identity was supposed to be accepted by faith and he wasn't just going to bowl people over with amazing miracles like the Antichrist is going to do. He's not, he's not interested in bowling people over. He wants to give them enough information so that they can believe if they care to. And so the hollow bullet there, Jesus referred to his death and resurrection glory as his hour when he says, my hour has not yet come. You can see all those references in the Gospel of John when he mentions his hour. And it always has something to do with his death, his resurrection, and his glory. Evidently, opposition and defiance toward Jesus would have hastened his crucifixion if he had proclaimed his messiahship too loudly and too soon. So he's handling things delicately. And he says to Mary, you know, I have to be very careful about how we handle this. And that's what he meant with uh, my hour has not yet come. We, we can't just plow ahead with a lot of miracles and a lot of attention. And the last hollow bullet there. Mary's remarks to the servants indicate that she did not feel put off by Jesus' words, but rather was encouraged about the prospect of his imminent intervention in the problem. So we think, wow, you know, Jesus was kind of hard on his mom there. Why does he seem to be so elusive? And I think the answer is that um, he needs to make a little separation, mom. I, I can't just fix all the problems. This is delicate. And I think that's what's going on. Uh, so does that raise any questions or observations? AJ. Yeah, we don't know if Jesus might have done miracles in the presence of his family. That's at least possible. Uh, so we could speculate maybe she came to him with that request because it's not the first time he solved the problem for the family. Sure, that's possible. We don't know. So, you know, where the Bible is silent, we'll be careful. Yes, as a matter of fact, do I? yes, at the very bottom of page 23, you see that we're talking about somewhere between 108 and 162 gallons of wine. Bear this in mind. In these days, a small city like Cana, the entire community could have been there. This could have been a community-wide event. So you could have hundreds of people there. Furthermore, the weddings lasted days. So it's not like you're two hours and done. The wedding celebration 
could be, it, it, it would be expected to be three days long. So you have the entire community uh, hosting, hosted at this event for three days, and that's why there is so much. But yeah, that's, that's a lot of wine. That's true. Tom. Yeah, that's a good observation. I was in such a big hurry to finish seminary, speeding through. And so then at 27 years old, I'm in full-time ministry, except I realized no one particularly wanted to listen to a 27-year-old kid preach. So, oh, well, there's always that. <laughs> so, yeah, new uh, point is well taken. Yeah, and, and uh, surely Jesus and Mary have had a lot of heart-to-heart talks. So, yes, um, who knows what communication might have been going on there uh, between them because they knew each other so very well. Yeah, it was a major fail for the wedding planner. Yeah, not good. Uh, John. Yeah, John was saying it's kind of amazing that Jesus' brothers did not respect him in light of you know what they must have heard and, and known. Uh, but yeah, they really did not respect him. In that one place, they said he was beside himself. He was not in his right mind. So that is surprising. It's a little Joseph-esque, isn't it? Uh, Josiah. Yeah, it really is uh, to our advantage to, to understand the relationship when Jesus does not kowtow to Mary because that really helps clarify the doctrine of Mary, Mariolatry, it just isn't in Scripture. It just isn't there. And that does help us. So then comes the question of the wine. What was Jesus making? We mentioned 150 gallons plus minus, enough for the whole community. If you turn the page over, we're also suggesting that the wine Jesus made must have been fermented because no one supposes that old grape juice is better than new. And in Luke 5.39, that's one of the illustrations Jesus gives about his ministry, the, the old is better, uh, they would say. Um, and that's very much like our text in verse 10, uh, where the best is brought out first and then afterwards the worse when people are drunk. And so they're very, very similar ideas. And you realize that um, virtually all ancient wine was diluted with lots of water. So we're not doing Jesus, we're not doing what Jesus' guests did when we pour a bottle of wine, which has the same alcohol content as an ancient bottle of wine. When we pour a bottle of wine into a wine glass and drink it, we're not doing what Jesus' guests did. Uh, That wine was cut down with water. I've given you the hollow bullets there to show you how this was just the norm for not only Jewish people, but even pagan people in those days. Uh, And remember, if you go and get grape juice at the store and leave that sitting on your countertop, it doesn't last very long. So if you had a grape harvest and you were just going to leave the grape juice at room temperature or outside temperature, that would mean you could have, you know, grape drink for, what, a week or two after harvest, and then it's going to go bad. So if you're going to have wine, you know, grape drink year-round, you're going to have to do the whole fermented wine thing, or it's not going to work. You, you'll get sick. 
So that's what was happening in all ancient times. They didn't have refrigeration and they didn't have, you know, Welch's. That was kind of a big deal when Mr. Welch figured out how to keep grape juice from spoiling so that we could have it all year round. Uh, but that's a relatively recent innovation. So in ancient days, you see the hollow bullets there. The prevailing view, not only with Jewish people, but even with pagan people, was that drinking wine unmixed was barbaric. You wouldn't just pour it from the bottle into your glass. That's barbaric. Why would you do that? The second bullet, uh, an ancient pagan saying, this is not even a Jewish saying. An ancient pagan saying was, half and half, half water, half wine, brings madness. And unmixed wine brings death. Like, you don't want it to be half water, half wine. It should be cut down way more than that. Um, Homer, the ancient Greek poet, again, pagan, he mentions mixing a uh, ratio of 20 to 1, 20 parts water to one part wine. Uh, Pliny, the elder, talks about 8 to 1, 8 parts water to one part wine. Alexis, 4 to 1. Aristophanes, 3 to 2. Hesiod, Ion, Diocles, Anacreon, 2 to 1. And the Talmud mentions 3 parts water to one part wine. So Jesus almost certainly made fermented wine. But you just remember when you pour yourself a glass of wine, you're not doing what they did. They didn't drink it unmixed. So you should bear that in mind, even though, yes, Jesus made fermented wine. Does that raise any questions or observations, Tom? We don't want to find ourselves finding fault with Jesus. Right. Yeah, very good. Yeah, he doesn't need us to justify what he does. Yeah, good, Joe. You just have to be really careful in projecting your preferences onto the New Testament because sometimes the New Testament does not go along with our preferences. It would be so nice if the New Testament said, never, ever drink anything alcoholic, ever. We say, okay, well, then I know what to do. But instead, we have texts like this, and there are many of them. I think, oh, those people are drinking alcohol. Hmm. And it would have made our lives a lot more tidy uh, if they just wouldn't have ever, ever had alcohol. But that's not the way it was. AJ. And, and abstinence is not a bad idea. One of my friends put on Facebook something like, they tell me that drinking in moderation is okay, but they never told me how to drink in moderation. And that was his history. And so for him, abstinence was, was the only option. And I wish that there was no such thing as alcohol. I'd be fine with me. I hate it. But, you know, it is what it is. Marie? Well, most Christians in Europe drink wine as part of their meal, or not necessarily as part of every meal, but they drink wine periodically. And they wonder why we Americans don't. It's a bit of a mystery to them why we do some of the things we do, and they're different. That old joke of, Billy Graham and his wife going over to England on the airplane. And when they stepped off the airplane, the British Christians who were waiting for them looked at one another and said, Look at Ruth is wearing a lot of makeup. And they thought, this is shocking, you know, scandalous. And then they said, well, on the way home, we're going to stop off at the pub. And Ruth and Billy Graham looked at each other and said, this is scandalous. <laughs> so they, they both hated each other for compromise and uh, they didn't understand. So, but yeah, in Europe, it's just common that 
people do drink wine. By the way, even that, if the Jewish people today, did you ever think about this? You have four cups of wine with a Passover meal. Think four cups of wine? How big are the cups? Four cups of wine? And of course, I guess if you eat enough and take enough time to eat, that's going to affect your blood alcohol level. But four cups of wine, that's why the Talmud say, you have to cut this stuff down. You can't have some, you know, 110-pound woman drinking four cups of wine in two hours. That's, that, that could be trouble. So um, that's why even in the Talmud, they cut that down with water. You can't go drinking four cups of wine if you're a you know, petite woman at lunch. You just can't do that. John. Right, that's a very good point. Remember that when you're in ancient uh, situations, and Europe even now in most respects, they didn't really have pure water. So you have to drink something and just dropping a little alcohol in that water uh, helps with the purity of it and you can drink better. That's true. Kathy, I'm sorry. That's absolutely right. Uh, we don't fault somebody who is dying of cancer for taking morphine to deaden the pain. And if that was happening in you know 75 AD, uh, we might be giving our relatives some wine to deaden the pain. And you know you can't hate a guy for that. Josiah. So uh, the, the background of prohibition in America, it is very unique. Uh, what took place here uh, was never really considered anywhere in history except here in America and only in the early 1900s. So we had this unusual thing here in the U.S. People moved out west, particularly, but not only out west, but people moved out west before the law arrived. So it really was the wild west. There was no law. And the... Drinking was prevalent in, in almost every crime scene. And by the way, it's not so different right now. I have a son at this moment studying to become a police officer, and they just spent an entire week on DUIs because DUIs are the gateway to all kinds of arrests. Am I right, Jeremy? So you stop a guy for impaired driving, and then suddenly you realize, oh, well, it's not just impaired driving with this guy. He's got some other things going on here, too. And you use the impaired driving to pull him over, and then you get a lot more than impaired driving. Well, that was the deal. If you go back to the early 1900s, you know, erase the welfare program. There's no welfare program. So you erase the welfare program. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And um, you look, and here's an orphan. Well, why is he so poor? Oh, look, dad's a drinker. Mm. here's a wife, she's been beaten half to death by her husband. What's behind that? Oh, here are the bottles all over the living room. Now we know. Every time there's some person in poverty, some person being brutalized, there's the smell of alcohol in the room. And eventually a whole bunch of Christians, because remember, we were never the majority, but we had some clout. And a whole bunch of Christians said, we are sick to death of the smell of alcohol at every crime scene. Let's do away with it. And there was such a lot of influence that he said, all right, let's do away with it. And we had the brief prohibition. But that was extraordinary. It is not an American thing to drink, although in the Wild West there was no law. And then in places where there was law, there was no welfare program. Uh, There was no fallback plan. And so alcohol was the culprit of so much suffering around us. Then, if you go to other countries, sometimes they had the same problem. When I was in Russia, in about 
whenever that was, 2000, 2000 and say four or five, we, I couldn't because I didn't speak the language, but there was a, a conference of all of the people who worked with the Emmaus Correspondence Courses going out and witnessing in the neighborhood. And every man they met was drunk at three o'clock in the afternoon, all drunk. So, no, it's not an American phenomenon. Uh, other countries have the same problem. But almost, we had a lot of clout. Charla. Yeah, Charla's saying that was just an unusual time in American history with the confluence of, of uh, revivals and the whole, um, you know, McGuffey's reader and all of that is coming to bear on, on American culture. And it was a very unique time. But worldwide, I mean, imagine uh, we mentioned, AJ mentions the priest who was drunk. Wasn't that the entire reputation of Irish priests? They all did that all the time. I mean, that was, that was the reputation anyway. So uh, it's not just here. It, was, it, was, it always has been in the world. You go to the tribal areas, and they're fermenting the most unusual things, sometimes mixed with saliva or whatever, like gross. But, you know, everybody's drinking something fermented and, and getting uh, blasted. So it's everywhere. Uh, one great lesson from this whole first miracle of Jesus is found in the water pots. And you see the role of Christians in God's work on earth. Our duty is to fill the water pots to the brim. I love that, that the servants fill them to the brim. Because they could have taken a shortcut. But they didn't. They did you know, they're very best. You want me to fill them, I will fill them. They fill them to the brim. But only Jesus can do the real miracle that God's work really requires. And it reminds us that everything we do in life is somewhat mm, dumb compared to what has to happen. You know, like, we're out of wine. What should we do? I know. Let's fill the water pots. That will help. <laughs> I don't really think that helps very much. But if God is in it, then that's all you need to do, right? And and that's the way it is with everything in the Christian life. You think, um, the reason that America is in decline is because we all didn't get out there and lobby about abortions. I'm like, no, that's probably not why America is in decline. It probably has something to do with God's sovereignty and God working in hearts, how he wants to work in hearts. And I sincerely doubt that the problem is we didn't lobby the abortion clinics enough. Uh, or you fill in the blank there with whatever. Uh, the reason that there aren't more people getting saved today is that we're just not knocking on enough doors in the neighborhood. No, probably what's happened there is we've been knocking on a lot of doors in the neighborhood and we see it's not working very well. It's building resistance to the gospel instead of receptivity. And so we backed off and thought, okay, well, if the Lord is not going to go ahead of us and prepare hearts, let's not just anger everybody for the same reason we wouldn't do it in Iraq or uh, Afghanistan. Let's not just go door knocking and make everybody mad. Um, the Lord has to do the miracle and he doesn't seem to be doing it. So let's recalibrate here and see uh, what we might be doing uh, differently in the future. And you just think, well, you know, the reason this didn't happen is that I didn't try hard enough. I didn't do something just right. Like, no. I mean, that's possible. And we want to fill the water pots to the brim. 
But the point is, when you have done what you're supposed to do, only God can do the miracle. And that's, that's so freeing. So your job, do it the best way you know how, as God gives you understanding. And you say, but what if I don't make a big splash? What if I don't see the big miracle? Well, the miracle is what God does. You just fill the water pot to the brim and don't worry so much about the miracle. That's in the hands of God. And I just think that that's such a relief in life because once again, you can make yourself crazy saying, oh man, I didn't, you know, in my case, here I am, uh, I didn't do a very good job for the Lord with uh, my younger ministry years and I made these mistakes with my kids as a dad and what am I going to do? And you can make yourself sick. What hopefully we are doing today and what we'll do tomorrow when we wake up is we will fill the water pots to the brim. Lord, I'll do anything I know you want me to do. I will. And fill them to the brim. And if things result in a miracle, how nice. And if they don't, it's all right. The miracles come from God. Mm, Filling water pots is what we can do. So let's do it with all of our heart and let the results uh, fall where they may in God's sovereignty. And we can live with that. Josiah. Yeah, imagine every time somebody's short on something, somebody runs out and starts filling water pots and say, it worked once, it ought to work again. Uh, there's just no assurance that that's true. And, and uh, I still remember, I, I've always loved that uh, illustration, except I can't document it. Elmer Towns told it about a man who had labored among the Muslim people for all of his life. His son comes in and follows up in the same country, same kind of ministry. And for whatever reason, during the son's ministry, they have this evangelistic outreach. And he said, I saw more people come to the gospel in one night during this outreach than my dad saw in his whole career as a missionary with these people. So the bad way to think would be, I guess I'm twice the man dad was. And what you're really seeing is, you know, these days there are so many dreams and visions and these Muslim people are seeking the Lord like never before. You know what? You can't cause anybody to have a dream or a vision. That's the miracle. You can't do that. So you think, wow, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me. They never have dreams or visions with me. Oh, that's really not, not your, under your purview. You know, that, that's, that's for God. And, and it's just very freeing to think, you know what? I'm going to fill the water pots to the brim and leave the results with God. And, and you can live with that. That's, that's our part. That's what we do. Uh, Bob. Very good. Yes. Evangelizing, witnessing is sharing the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. That's very, very well said. That's right. Well, um, let me just mention a couple things on Jesus' purging of the temple. And we won't go into this at all. I just wanted to remind you that this purging of the temple comes immediately on the heels of the miracle of the water and the wine. And you'll see that evidently Jesus does this again at the end of his ministry, just a few days before his crucifixion. Now, some people think that these are the same and that even though the cleansing of the temple happened at the end of Jesus' ministry, just before his crucifixion, John puts it here because it talks about, you know, his his cleansing ministry. But I suspect that there are actually two uh, purgings of the temple, and they're very similar. And 
that makes sense because three years later, you can imagine that all the abuses are right back in full swing and Jesus would do it again. So do notice that there's this one right in the first, you know, early part of Jesus' ministry, a week or so, and then there's one just a few days before his crucifixion. I think they're separate. And I want to remind you that the abuse is twofold because the money changers are sitting there with their tables, hawking their wares, and the idea is that if you want to buy a sacrifice animal, you're going to bring coins from whatever part of the world you're from, and we're not going to accept those here in the temple because the coins have pagan images on them so or the coins come from another land and you don't want to vouch for their silver content so they bring their coins to the temple and the money changers say oh we can't accept your silver coins here tell you what we'll give you one of our temple approved silver coins for a fee well then the fee the markup was uh very immoral and so they're getting people over a barrel and incidentally they were using Tyrian silver uh, because Tyre no longer produced the silver coins. So the Jewish people got permission to mint them right there in the Jerusalem area. But the Roman government said, you can mint them, but you can't change the pictures. So on one side was the picture of the pagan god Hercules. And on the other side, a graven image of an eagle. So both sides are bad. But the Jewish people say, well, we'd rather have the money than dicker over the images. And so they say, you can't use your silver coin here because it has a pagan image on it. You have to use one of ours. But theirs had pagan images on them, too. So the hypocrisy was very sad. And then you can't bring, you know, to save the money, I'm going to bring my own lamb or pigeons or whatever sacrifice animals we're talking about. You get there and they say, oh, well, your animal has a blemish. I don't see a blemish. I picked this one out because it's just right. Oh, well, it does have a blemish. So I can't use it? No, you can't use it. You have to buy one of our animals. Okay, how much? You have to use our silver, not that silver. So they have you over a barrel, coming or going, and Jesus is watching him, and they're probably calling out to people uh, like hawkers at a carnival. And Jesus had enough of it. And he went in, and he took all the little leashes for the animals that are lying around on the floor, and he braided them together, made a whip, and he tipped over the tables and he drove them out. And that was the cleansing of the temple. So that's what upset Jesus. That was the scheme of the money changers. And I, I only also want you to notice that Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's in the same passage. And when you're talking to Jehovah's Witnesses, they will always say, that there is no such thing really as raising the body from the grave. The body is uh, disintegrated by God or by natural courses. And uh, God recreates an entirely new body just from his memory of what your old body was. So the new body, the resurrection body, has no connection with the old original body. You say, well, what about Jesus' body? Because he's only in the grave for three days. You don't think that that decayed and went into disintegration. And they say, no, the Lord must have just destroyed that body and hid it away some way and then made Jesus an entirely new body. This text has Jesus saying, you destroy this temple. He's talking about the temple of his body. You destroy this temple, this particular one, and in three days I will raise it up again. 
not a different one created from the memory of God, this one. And so you should always remember that there's a real connection between your physical body and your resurrection body that you will have someday. And that's why the Bible says that Jesus will change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. It's a changed body, but it is the same body in some respect. Uh, Again, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, not disintegrated and recreated from the memory of God, just changed. And that's a very important text. 